0: This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Good morning, everyone. The first Bible reading is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. Large crowds were trapped, he said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be
1: to God. And the Old Testament reading today is going to be from the book of Daniel, and we'll be reading chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, Judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Sadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is this true, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship, it will be throw- you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? The king's command was so urgent, and the furnace so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Sadrach, Mishak, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, "Weren't three, there three men that would, sorry, were not there? Three men that we tied up and threw into the fire?" They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, Prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Sadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Sadrach and abednego in the province of babylon hear the word of the lord thanks be to god
0: let's pray almighty god we thank you for your holy word may it be a lantern to our feet a light to our paths and strength to our lives in the name of your son jesus christ our lord amen please do leave the sermon outline i I realize we uh, peppered you with paper today, uh, and there should be a sermon outline there, and of course the the text of Daniel 3 that we heard read for us just now. And our story begins today with Kim Nebuchadnezzar again, uh, and he is building uh, an enormous... He sets it up in the plain of Dura in his home province. And this golden image was enormous. It was 27 meters high. I was trying to figure out how tall our spire is here. And I think that is close to 27, 30, 30 meters, that kind, of, that kind of size. So you can imagine a statue that big. That's what we have here, uh, glowing in the sun. Now, was this a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Did it have his own face on it? Well, we can only wonder it would have been typical of kings like nebuchadnezzar to do that sort of thing he wouldn't be the first or the last but it certainly represented his imperial power he commanded all the officials all the governors of his realms the did you get them the satraps the uh, prefects the governors the advisors the treasurers the judges the magistrates and all the other provincial officials and uh, of course our storyteller tells us this list two or three times just so we don't miss it occasion ceremony which i imagine is something like a Nuremberg rally. It's a very familiar scene in our own times. We've seen the armies parading before huge images of Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Pictures of Chairman Mao were everywhere in communist China of his day. Saddam Hussein's statue in, in Baghdad Firdos Square was just one of many that glowered over the people of Iraq when he was the dictator. Here is Nebuchadnezzar's version of that statue. And then a royal herald makes a proclamation as we see in verses 4 and 6 addressed to all the subjects of Nebuchadnezzar's multi-ethnic empire and it outlines a compulsory ritual. He's brought them together for a reason and that is not just to look at this statue but indeed to worship it. The herald says, as soon as you hear the sound of the the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music. You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up." What if you don't? Well, there's a sinister consequence, isn't there? Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the fiery furnace, into a blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar is not simply demanding loyalty and obedience as any good governor might. He's demanding complete obeisance, complete worship, which means not just doing what he says, but acknowledging that he is master of life and death, that he, whole is, he is the brackets around human existence, that he thought as well as every movement. Now, are we meant to laugh or be terrified? It's a scene that is at once both Python-esque, slightly silly, but also deeply shocking. In the first place, were you here last week? Do you remember the dream that he had in chapter 2? What was the dream of? It was a dream of a, a statue, a statue with feet of clay. Feet of clay, this statue is toppled, of course, by a rock. And this was a great shock to uh, to Nebuchadnezzar because he learned from Daniel back in chapter two that his own kingdom was standing on feet of clay. Had he so readily forgotten the revelation of the one true God that came to him through Daniel? Well, that's just one thing that makes this scene absurd. But by repeating these long lists of officials and musical instruments every time, and I think we were supposed to kind of chuckle a little bit. It's not great comedy, but it is meant to be a little bit funny. The author of our story is how pompous and absurd Nebuchadnezzar's claim to absolute power is. Dictators are always a bit ridiculous. Charlie Chaplin uh, actually revealed how silly uh, Adolf Hitler was by doing a complete comic takeoff of him. It was coincidental that they had the same moustache back in the 1930s. But Nebuchadnezzar is equally as silly as any of those dictators. I mean, what if I hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the harp, and the pipe, but fail to hear the zither? Do I have to bend down then? And do they play in a certain order? Are they playing a certain tune? Um, is this a command for a certain ceremony? Or at any time of the day, when you're walking around, a little bit like a game of musical statues or game of musical chairs, in reverse. You hear the music, you bow down. It says, if the king is really so powerful, then he wouldn't have to use such bizarre marketing techniques, backed up by threats, to prove just how powerful he is. This emperor has no clothes. Or you might say, this emperor is standing on feet of clay. But it's also terrifying, because the king means it. And if you don't obey him, you'll be burned to death. It's absurd and it's silly, but it's no joke. And it has its effect, because we see in verse 7, what, what, what do they do? What does the crowd do? Well, of course, when the orchestra played, I won't enumerate the instruments, uh, list them yet again. The people worshipped. Oh, perhaps we should be a little bit impressed by Nebuchadnezzar and what he has apparently achieved here. His golden statue, the image of his rule, has finally united of the earth. He, it seems, has reversed the curse of the Tower of Babel. You remember when all the languages of the, of the earth were scattered and humanity was forever divided after its attempt to make a name for themselves and claim to be almost equal with God. This statue changes the tide of history. Around it, all humanity gathers, apparently, a united humanity. But Nebuchadnezzar's done it, not just power, but total sovereignty over everything. He has claimed power over life and death itself, a power that he will enforce with terrifying immediacy. Now, thank God we don't live in such a regime. I mean, I hope you thank God all the time in this country however we might whinge about it and sometimes that's just but we live in a pretty good system don't we there are plenty of regimes like this around on out the face of the earth even today a very strong reason that we here in australia don't live in such a system is because of the influence of just this story and stories like it from the bible the influence that they have had on our political system We have learnt from the Bible to keep the idea of loyal allegiance as a citizen separate from worship of the sovereign Lord. We've learnt to keep those as two different things and not to mix them. We've learnt that lesson, that costly and important. And that worship, true worship, keeps totalitarianism at bay. Worship of the true God reminds earthly governments to stay in their lane. One of the increasing results of a more secularist nation is that it will become more absolutist, more prone to erecting images of gold and demanding that we all prostrate ourselves before them, more prone to thinking that they can govern all aspects of life and death and intrude not just into the behavior of its citizens but into the minds and the spirits of its citizens too. So let us beware. But back to Babylon. Will everyone bow the knee to the image of gold? Now, for some, it would have been no big deal. If you're a polytheist and you're used to worshiping gods, uh, what's another one? Eh? The king wants us to bow the knee at the. You know, I know it's a stupid ritual. Let's just do it, comply, and get on with our business. Get on with the day. And uh, if you're a pragmatist and a survivor, maybe you just do what you need to do to get along, play the game to keep yourself safe. But there's a group of people in the empire who aren't going to play the game. And pretty soon, in a classic case uh, of dobbing straight from the primary school uh, playground, uh, some astrologers, motivated, no doubt, by envy at the success of Daniel and his friends in their interpretation of the king's dreams and their prominence in the empire, dob them in, and uh, say to the emperor they're not they're not complying with his command it's these jewish boys who've risen to high public office that get in trouble and what's the accusation well it's in verse 12 they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up it's a challenge to nebuchadnezzar too isn't it to see if he really means it or whether his threats are merely empty and so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are called in to give an answer to this accusation. Is it true? Do they defy the clear order of the king? Nebuchadnezzar, though he is full of rage, at least gives them a chance to answer him and then to comply. But there's an ultimatum that goes with it the same ultimatum that was there in the, in the beginning. If you do not worship, this statue, You will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar adds something intriguing. He says, Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Can you see how Nebuchadnezzar thinks of his own power? His furnace burns that no God could ever rescue anyone who is put in it. His power is so absolute that there is no divine being that could ever match it. My hand, he says, is stronger. And when you are in my hand, you will not be able to be saved. It's a terrifying moment, at least because Nebuchadnezzar uses about the worst form of execution that anyone can imagine. I think there are lots of horrible (laughs) and painful ways to put people to death as history shows us, that a furnace is about the worst. It's not just that it's brutally painful. It means that you are completely dissolved. You are completely wiped out. No body left behind. You are extinguished entirely in the flames. But maybe there's something more here that Nebuchadnezzar can't quite see. Because in the Bible, Israel's God is often described as fire, The fire of the burning bush that Moses saw. Or the fire on the top of Mount Sinai as the people who came out of uh, Egypt, led by Moses, at the foot of that mountain and heard the law. Or the fire that burned in the temple when the people went there to make their sacrifices and take their prayers to God. So when Nebuchadnezzar asks, What God will be able to rescue from my hand? Though he means as a rhetorical question, With the answer, none, we're left wondering about the God who is himself flaming fire and who rescued his people from Pharaoh so long ago. A God who has a proven track record of defeating trumped-up emperors. Well, what would you do in this situation? If you were in the turbans and in the shoes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? before the raging king at the lip of the fiery furnace. Well, they give a remarkable reply, don't they? They don't try to explain themselves or ask for an exemption. They say, we don't need to make a defense. Now, on the one hand, they, they do not accept that they cannot be delivered. From. They serve a God, they say, who can indeed deliver them, perhaps from the furnace, but certainly from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, they know who is truly powerful in this situation but that's not all well they say even if he does not even if he does not save us now now this is i think an intriguing moment and reveals a deep truth about the faith they do not have simply magical thinking about the lord god their faith is not built on a guarantee of rescue from the fiery furnace They aren't in it because of the good stuff they can get, but because they know the Lord is the true God. The bottom line is that they will not serve any other gods, nor worship the image of gold, whatever may come, whatever may be threatened. Maybe, they say, he will pull them out of the furnace. He is certainly able to do so. They know that he can do it. But that is not the promise in which they hope. That is not why they refuse Nebuchadnezzar here. That is not what they. That, that is not. That is not the. Pro, they are not expecting that. They do not know that that will happen. These boys are not naive. They know that the true God is not at their disposal and does not promise that we will be spared suffering. Indeed, this is what happened in the early church and on and on into the present day. Christians have faced the lions in the Colosseum. They have been tortured. They have been burnt. They have been imprisoned. They have, uh, in the old communist bloc, been subjected to chemical treatments, been put away in insane asylums, and had their mental health questioned. They've suffered public humiliation, and even in our own time, beheading. For the name of Christ and were not rescued. They did not read this story and assume that they would be delivered as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were from the flames. In fact, it's interesting in my, in my study of uh, martyrdom, um, I, it's interesting how often the book of Daniel comes up, and this story in particular. And it is used by those who will face death for Christ, never assuming that here is a promise that they will be delivered, rescued, from what stands before them so what did they hope in then notice that they say god can deliver us from the flames but he will deliver us from your majesty's hand maybe they say that will not be from death in the fiery furnace but through it they do not quite know but they know that the true god is the god of the living who offers a hope that is larger than life itself they knew they had learnt to sing Gam ki elech bige zalmavet lo iracha ki imat I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for thou art with me As Christians we have that hope in far more vivid terms, in the resurrection of Jesus, put to death by the power of Rome, who prayed knowing that God could have rescued him from the cross and yet, who went to the cross and yet was raised from the dead. Now I think this, this insight can help us in all sorts of circumstances, including when we are facing sickness or deep trouble in our lives. We ought to pray to God. God can deliver us. God can heal us. God can heal us marvelously and miraculously. And believe me, he does. He can rescue us. He can change our circumstances in ways that we cannot expect, in ways that, uh, that, that are quite extraordinary. I've seen this myself. And yet, that is not the promise. He can do that. But What he promises to do is to deliver us from the valley of the shadow of death, to deliver us from the grip of evil. And how much more reason do we then have to stand with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when we are called upon to bow down to images of gold, to say, we will not worship your gods or worship the, image, the images of gold. Now, these young men are not freedom fighters or terrorists. They are loyal servants of the king, but they will not do it. They will not worship his image of gold. And this really annoys the king do we see Nebuchadnezzar really flaming hot, almost as hot as his furnace, furnace a couple of times in this passage. And he orders the furnace to be stoked to seven times hotter, and the three men, fully clothed and clothed and tightly bound, are cast into the flames. Now who can imagine such a terrible scene? It was so hot that the soldiers standing by are killed by the heat and the flames. But then the extraordinary happens. And it's Nebuchadnezzar that sees it first, amidst the blinding light of the fire. He can see, peers in. And he can see not three figures, but four walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And he says, these are extraordinary words, he says, the fourth one looks like the son of the gods. It's interesting that we see this with Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. It's he who describes the scene. And it's he who sees this mysterious divine figure in the flames and that these four men appear unharmed. And so the king calls them all out of the fire And the three men that stand before him then are not even a little bit burnt. And not for the first time we get a speech from Nebuchadnezzar which teaches us the lesson of the story. He now praises the God of the three boys. For he knows that this God sent his angel and rescued his servants, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Got it right, he admits. They trust in the Lord and not in the king's command. I love it that the king himself says, you know, you were right not to trust my command. You trusted in your God. They were willing, he says, to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except for their own God. What are we to make of this fourth man in the flames? Even in the hell of the fiery furnace, even in the midst of a great evil, God does not abandon his people present with us in nebuchadnezzar's eyes he is present by this mysterious figure like one of the sons of god like like a son of the gods like an angel christians have always seen this fourth figure though as foreshadowing jesus emmanuel god with us these men were not abandoned to the flames god was with them and we are not abandoned in whatever dark place we find ourselves in our times of trial and testing, whether they come externally or whether they are internal to us, in our our loneliness and sickness, in our despair, in our pain, we are not abandoned. God was with us to deliver us from sin and death in Jesus and now is with us by his Holy Spirit to guide us and to comfort us and in particular to strengthen us when we are put to the test These young men refused to serve or worship any other god, even when they were commanded to, and they were willing to give up their lives rather than do this. Now, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney uh, today, and I believe in other parts of Sydney too, we're rarely confronted with these sorts of stark either-ors, the sort of thing that you see here in Babylon and in other parts of our contemporary world. We we, we rarely get the sort of challenge bow down before the golden image or go to the furnace but the case of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and the case of all those who have died for the name of Christ these cases they give us some clarity about what the Christian life is about will we trust in him and will we refuse to worship anyone else have we heard Jesus' call to discipleship his call to come follow him And Jesus, in the second reading we had today, speaks with some hyperbole about hating your mother and father and all the rest. What he's saying is, put me first. Order everything else in your life after me. Worship nothing else. Pick up your cross, it may cost you indeed, and come follow me. So will we trust in him and will we refuse to worship anyone else? For we're certainly being invited every day to bend the knee, to give our worship to things that are things that are not really God. These are gold, there are golden images set up everywhere you look. And to worship them means letting them be what ultimately reality and gives you your meaning. Now, when you listen to as many eulogies as I do, um, it's a professional hazard I listen to, I could write a book actually about, about eulogies. Uh, you get to see how this works in ordinary people's lives. People around us live lives um, that are wonderful lives in many cases. They live lives that are absolutely devoted to their work and to the pursuit of ordinary pleasures, with barely even a nod to the true God. It's not as if work are bad things, but they make terrible gods. These are lives measured by a nice house, by glasses of white wine, and stamps on a passport. The novelist David Foster Wallace, not himself, a Christian, once said, there's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And that poses a great question to us. Thanks for listening.